Our sermon this evening comes to us from Ephesians chapter 5, and specifically we are going to be looking at Ephesians 5 and verses 15 through 21. Ephesians 5 and verses 15 through 21. As Paul continues to talk about the Christian's walk, how we can best walk in the world in this present evil age that we live in, yet we've been called to be light in the midst of darkness. And he's going to have excellent advice for not just the Ephesians, obviously, but for us. But before we turn our attention to the word of God, let's go to the God who gave it to us in the first place, and let's ask him to bless it. Please join me. Sovereign Lord, we are here this evening because you purposed that to happen. It was your good plan that we should be here and hearing these words. And so I pray, O Lord, that we would not lose this opportunity. I pray, Lord, that as I preach, I would open up your word correctly. I would exposit it truly, and I would apply it to your people in the way that you would have me do so. And I pray, Lord, that you would give us open ears. It would be a tragedy if, as the maker, the creator of the universe, the one to whom we owe everything, was speaking to us, and we allowed our thoughts to drift away or fall asleep or something to that effect. Instead, O oh Lord, we pray that you would fix our attention on these words of your Apostle Paul because they are inspired words that came to him through the Holy Spirit and that you would cause them to enter into us, O oh Lord, go down to our hearts and produce that harvest that you desire. May we, O oh Lord, be changed and molded and made after your image, the image of our our great Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray this in his holy name. Amen. Amen. Ephesians chapter 5 and verses 15 through 21. I do remind you, this is the word of the Lord. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always, uh, always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. In uh, 1976, uh, a movie which captivated me as a kid came out. Uh, the name of the movie was Logan's Run. And it was one of, uh, there were several dystopian movies that came out, things like Soylent Green. I won't give the end of that one away, but most of you already know the uh, catchphrase from Soylent Green. But in any event, uh, Logan's Run was another one of these post-apocalyptic uh, movies. And I, I'll try not to, you know... <coughs> Pastor Andy ruins movies, but um, I'll try not to give too much of it away. Uh, the What has happened is there's been some sort of nuclear war or something like that. The people are living underground in a dome, uh, and everything that they, they could need for their civilization is provided for them. They have, uh, and they, they live fairly well. They have hairdressers. They have you know, restaurants, bars, and so on. It's, it's kind of like Wally, you know, everything is provided for the people constantly. But uh, there's the problem of population. How will they control population? They can't get uh, bigger than the dome's resources will support. So what the makers of this dome determined uh, was that everybody, when they were born, would have a crystal implanted in their palm. 
And to start off with, the crystal would be white, but then it would gradually go through different spectrums of colors as they aged. Uh, as they got older, the crystal would turn green, and then it would turn yellow. Eventually, it would turn red. And then when they got to the age of 30, or 10 days from the age of 30, the crystal would turn black. And it was time for them to be euthanized. And, they, uh, and if they uh, resisted that, they had this cadre of semi-policemen called sandmen who would count the, uh, who would um, uh, go after them and, and you know, kill them. Um, and what the, uh, the underlying idea in this movie was, you know, everything is, is provided for, you know, you live until you're 30, uh, you can have, um, you know, sexual relations, there's intoxication, there's all of these things that you can do to keep you occupied during that period, but the, the civilization is not growing. There's nothing productive going on. Everything is already provided for you. You just through, go through the motions, eating, drinking, being merry, and so on, until you're 30, and then you die. And one of the things, obviously, that the producers in the movie were trying to say is that is not a life. And so it's something that we should be fleeing from, this idea that we only have a, a certain amount of time in our lives, and we should try to live to the fullest. Well, that is something that Paul is trying to tell us as well throughout Ephesians. He is trying to communicate to the Ephesian congregation that our days are limited. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but it, it would be possible to put a, a counter over your head, ticking down the time until the moment when you will die, all of us. Uh, you know, perhaps the counter would be green if we had a lot of time uh, ahead of us, or red if we had a uh, shorter time remaining, or, or black if we're about to die. But sooner or later, all of us will go before our maker. Sooner or later, all of us will die. The question then is not whether we are going to die. The question is, how will we use the time that remains to us? Will we use it well? Will we use it for kingdom purposes? How will you use that time remaining? Paul outlines that in Ephesians. That's what he's essentially trying to tell them. He says uh, he's returning to this idea of the way that they walk, their vocation. He does that again and again. See that you walk, he says here, circumspectly. The, uh, the word in Greek, obviously, is not circumspectly. It's akrobos. But it means the same thing. It means to, work ca to walk carefully. Circumspectly is to walk cautiously with watchfulness every way, with attention to guard against surprise or danger, to be careful in the way that we walk. Christians should be living self-consciously. And not in the sense of, oh, I'm... I'm so conscious about myself, but we should be conscious of the way that we live out our life before the world. We should be living with a purpose. We should be living to glorify Christ because the time is short. So we need to buy up for ourselves the seasonable time that remains for us, to use it for good, not to, to use it the way that the world did in, in partying and and just basically entertaining themselves, engaging in commerce, trading, you know, here and there, and then dying. That, for the Christian, would be a purposeless life, a, a life that's not constructed in the way that it should be, because we were made for the great purpose of worship. That's what we were made to do, and we were made to bring others into that relationship with Christ, and to use the gifts that God has given us in a way that honors him and glorifies him all the time. So we need to be redeeming 
uh, redeem, Wall says, for yourselves, that is, availing yourselves of the opportunity offered you of acting aright and commanding the time as a master does his servant. Another, uh, another commentator put it this way. He says, watch the time and make it your own so as to control it as merchants look out for opportunities and accurately choose out the best goods. Serve not the time, but command it, and it shall do what you approve. Do you think of the time that you've been given in that way? I find that far too many of us, you know, like the Pink Floyd song, fritter away our time in an offhand way. And that is not the way that we should be living, obviously. Paul is not, um, uh, is not under any illusion about the nature of the time that we're living in. He calls it uh, an evil age. He says the days are evil. In Galatians 1.4, he referred to the time that we're living in as this present evil age. This present evil age, of course, is that period between the fall and between the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, it's a time that's marked by sinfulness. It's a time that's marked by rebellion. But we are walking towards that time when everything will be changed. We're walking towards the age to come, which will be an age of glory. It'll be an age where redemption is complete. It'll be an age, hopefully, where you and I are in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ when we are redeemed fully, when we have those glorified bodies, when we are celebrating the fact that we're able to worship God no longer through a glass darkly, but face to face. But we need to be walking towards that objective and building up towards it, doing the will of the Lord, because that's what it means to live with understanding. Verse 17 reminds us here, it says, Therefore do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is the will of the Lord, how he would have us live every moment of our lives. The Lord's will ultimately, obviously, is for your sanctification. That is the Lord's great will for all Christians, that they would grow in grace, that they would become more and more like his own dear son, Jesus Christ, and less and less like the first Adam, the fallen Adam, and that in everything, every single day, you would be giving thanks because you know that all things work for the good of those who are called according to his purpose, those who are the beloved of God. That's you. Those are the people who God has, has picked out, the church chosen to be conformed to the image of his son, sanctified, made holy, set apart. And he says that we are therefore to be a people. Paul makes this point again and again. We're to be people of light, and we're to be people who are filled with the Spirit. And he makes a contrast between uh, the spirit that the world is filled with and the spirit that we should be filled with. Um, I said in the, the title, I was probably being too clever by half in, in naming it this way, make sure you're filled with the right spirit. In other words, don't be filled with intoxicating spirits, but rather be filled with the Holy Spirit is the point. Because in Ephesus, the people would become euphoric by getting drunk. As a matter of fact, they had Bacchanals. They were actually worshippers of Bacchus or Dionysius who uh, they would try to get into an ecstatic state by becoming so drunk in their parties that they, uh, you know, they, they uh, essentially they, they went into a, um, uh, a stupor or uh, completely uh, filled with ecstatic exhilaration as they were following up in the morning with a monumental hangover. That is not what Paul is talking about. He says, be filled with the Spirit. When are you filled with the Spirit? You're filled with the Spirit when the Spirit controls your thoughts, your feelings, your words, 
your actions, when you can say, as Christ said, not my will, but your will be done in your life, and it be true. Uh, the idea is that also there should be joy. It, it, just as people uh, drink to have that counterfeit happiness for a little while, and obviously not all drinking is, uh, is forbidden here. What's being forbidden is drunkenness, drunking to the point where you are getting intoxicated, drinking specifically in order to become drunk. But what he is saying is that as they drink to get drunk to feel happy and to feel enthusiastic, we, on the other hand, who are called in the name of the Lord, who are his people, should be filled with the Spirit, and therefore we should be joyful. Is your Christianity joyful? I keep saying this, but the idea that you, Christianity should make you miserable, if, if it is, you're doing it wrong. You've got the wrong thing. That's not Christianity. Miserable Christians are not, you know, it's not where we gradually, we're going, oh, going through the, I can't wait to die, <laughs> that kind of thing. That's not the way that we're supposed to live. We are supposed to be living lives of joy. Now, when the world is filled with enthusiasm and ecstatic and happy about things, uh, they tend to sing. I, you know, coming from, from England, I remember in soccer stadiums, it doesn't really happen in football stadiums here in the United States. Uh, once in a while, they sing something. But in, in England, because, you know, nobody goes to church anymore, where do they sing their hymns? They sing them in soccer stadiums. You'll never walk alone, that kind of thing, you know. And the entire stadium is suddenly filled with this noise, and they're all, you know, very enthusiastic about it. That's, that's the world, you know. But the Christians... We should be singers as well. And our singing should come from, from thankfulness to God. It, it should be an expression of our joy as we worship. Singing is part of your worship. Have you ever thought about that? As we sing, we are, we're singing the praises literally of God. We are telling him how wonderful he is, recounting his majesty and his works and his grace and telling the whole world what our relationship is to him, what he has done for us. And so therefore, as we sing, our hearts should be filled with, with joy and grace. It shouldn't be merely that we're reading the words and puffing air out into the world, but rather our hearts should be singing within us. Wilhelmus of Brockle, the Dutch Reformed pastor, put it very well when he said this about our singing of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. He said, it is a religious exercise, for we make use of the skill and sweetness of our voice to move others to have dealings with God. God has given man a voice to make his thoughts known to others. He has given man the ability to modulate his voice to either a high or a low pitch, or to speak slowly or rapidly, thereby enabling him to render his voice sweet and pleasant. It is also God's will that we shall use our voice in prayer, thanksgiving, and our speaking to him. Let me hear thy voice, Song of Songs 2.14. Since the modulation of our voices at a suitable rhythm is capable of unlocking our hearts and stirring our emotions, God thus also wills that we shall lift up our hearts to him in singing, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord, which is Colossians 3.16. However, our voice... And the melody in and of themselves are not pleasing to God. Rather, it is the motion of the heart relative to the spiritual matters which we express before God in the singing which pleases him. Now, let me break briefly in reading this quote to say, that is such a relief to me because I stink at singing. But yet, if I make a joyful noise to the Lord from the heart, it's acceptable to him. 
but if I were the best singer in the world, if I were, you know, better than Luciano Pavarotti or Michael Bublé or whoever, and yet I did not have in my heart the Holy Spirit or any grace or joy, then that would be actually taking the Lord's name in vain. I'd be breaking the third commandment. So it is the singing that goes on in the heart that pleases him. Both the voice and the melody are means to bring us into a spiritual frame and to lift up our hearts heavenward as well as the hearts of those who hear us. The Apostle James says this is the natural way for Christians to express their joy. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. And so here, in Ephesians 5, in a very small space, of course, Paul is telling the Ephesians, and you and I, many things about singing, three in particular. First, he says that we should be singing. God's people should be singing his praises. That's simple. Second, he tells us that our singing is to be an outgrowth of the word of Christ and his spirit dwelling within us. It should be understandable singing based on the scriptures. Thirdly, he tells us our singing goes in two different directions. First, it goes up to God, but it also goes out towards one another. It actually, believe it or not, has an edifying function within the congregation itself. So singing then, we see from this, is not something that one person does on behalf of the many. Okay, so it's one of the reasons why we don't, we don't do special music with somebody coming up here and singing to us, so to speak, in that way. Or just as a praise band. I've been to churches where the, you know, either the congregation doesn't sing because they couldn't be heard because the praise band is so loud. Or uh, it's, it's, a, it's essentially it's a performance being done for other people. But rather, this is something congregational. Singing is something that we do together. And in Colossians, Paul goes further. He tells us that our singing to one another has a teaching function. Teaching and admonishing one another. Therefore, like all good teaching in the church must be based on the word of God, not superstition, not feeling, not, not popular philosophy, not what the culture thinks is right. As we are singing, we are supposed to be teaching one another about the word of God and his work. Not merely about how we feel at that moment in time. Not merely just, you know, a few metaphors and analogies strung together, and you could take God out and put your boyfriend in, and the song would work just as well. That is not the way we should be singing. That's not what we're supposed to be singing. We're supposed to be singing and teaching one another about the word of God and his work. We're supposed to be telling the world this is the substance of our faith. They should be able to glean actual doctrine from our hymns. We are singing, brothers and sisters, what we believe. It also tells us that in order to worship, we need to be singing not merely with our hearts, as I said, but uh, not merely with our voices, rather, but with our hearts as well. And our singing is meant to be an act of thanksgiving. Are you thankful to God as you are singing? It's possible to sing that we're thankful to God and not actually experience that in our heart. But it should be that we are singing in, in keeping with what we're saying. We're thanking God, aren't we, for his amazing, redeeming work when we sing about it? We're thanking him for the mercy that he showed us. We stand and we sing. We praise God for his saving work in the midst of the world. We say, you may not believe this, but we do. We know it to be true. And so, therefore, joyful singing is meant to be a faithful, thankful response to God and his redemptive work, not just in the world, but in your lives. Do you understand that? There's a sense in which singing is objective, okay? So we sing objective truths to God. But at the same time, there's a sense in which it must be subjective. 
it must be something you've experienced yourself experimentally. So you're not singing about things you have no clue about. Rather, you have taken these things in, and so that's your heart bubbling up and singing the praises of God. We're told how to sing in verse 19 by Paul. He says, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, or as he says to the Colossians elsewhere, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Now, there are times, admittedly, when it is hard to make a joyful noise to the Lord because our hearts are heavy. Our hearts are, are, are absolutely downtrodden by the circumstances of our life. In Psalm 137, you remember, the psalmist writes about the response of the Babylonian captives. They'd been hauled off. Jerusalem had been destroyed. There they are in Babylon. And the Babylonians say, sing us some of the songs of Zion. And so we hear in Psalm 137, one, by the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down. Yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. We hung our harps upon the willows in the midst of it. For there, those who carried us away captive asked us a song. And those who plundered us requested mirth, saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? But we need to ask this question. Is that us, really? Are you and I captives in a foreign land? Are we in the midst of oppression? Has the temple been destroyed? Do we have very little hope of ever being returned? The answer is no. But far too often we allow the the circumstances which change so very, very often in our lives which are not as, as terrible as the circumstances, certainly the captives in Babylon, to get us down to the point where we, we can't sing. It's in those moments that we sing, need to sing, make melody in our hearts, or remind ourselves of the truth of salvation. It should not be the case also that members of Reformed congregations don't sing uh, or that they're merely just reading the words or the pages or so on. I, I just, I don't understand it. So often I see, and it's, it's men mostly, the, not the women, but they're just kind of standing there, you know, like this. Sometimes they'll have their arms crossed and so on. And these are not, you know, visitors who just walked in. It'll be communing members of the church. You're not singing. Why? <laughs> Why are you not singing? What? What's wrong? Are you afraid? Are you embarrassed? Somebody's going to, you know, nobody, nobody grades the singing in here. The elders of the church would be at the, you know, near the bottom of the scale. Let's face it, if we did that. Sorry, guys, I, I don't mean to do that. But you, you hear through this how bad you know, we, we really are. But yet, we still sing. Because that's what we're called to do. It's supposed to be an expression of the joy of our hearts. Not a contest to see who can sing best. It's one of the reasons why we don't do the performance aspect of it. It tends to make everybody else feel, oh, I can sing. Yes, you can. If you have the Lord's spirit within your hearts, yes, you can. So, in Ephesians, Paul says that you're not speaking merely to yourselves. It's not drunken carousing. It's spirit-filled worship that's going on. You're speaking to one another. And he says the things that we're supposed to sing. He gives three uh, three different things that we're supposed to be singing. He talks about psalmos and then hymnos and pneumaticus ode. Now, what are these things? Well, um, there are people who believe that they are, uh, he's essentially saying psalms, psalms, and psalms. Because in the Old Testament, in the book of Psalms, uh, the psalms are referred to uh, as, as odes, as songs. They're referred to as hymns occasionally, and they're referred to as psalms. But I, I don't believe that that's what he, uh, he was doing uh, when he said that. Uh, Psalmos by itself could refer to one of the sacred poems contained in the book of Psalms. 
or it could refer to a sacred poem found on the model of the Old Testament Psalms, like 1 Corinthians 14, 26. It, it talks about how regarding the worship of the Corinthian brethren, there Paul says, How is it then, brethren, whenever you come together, each one of you has a psalm, has a teaching, has a tongue, has a revelation, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. Now, there he's, he's talking about the ecstatic worship of the Corinthian church. He's not saying that each of you says, uh, you know, they come into the room and they're like, okay, let's sing Psalm 22. And then another one says, no, Psalm 100. And they get into a fight about it. And no, it's new compositions that he's talking about. Where Solomon, uh, Hodge puts it this way, he says, in 1 Corinthians 14, 26, where Solomon appears to mean such a song given by inspiration and not one of the Psalms of David. A hymn also is a song of praise to God. It's a divine song. I want us to understand what these terms mean, incidentally. That's why I'm going into them, so we know what we're, we're being called upon to sing. Augustine, St. Augustine, in more than one place, states that a, a hymn has three essentials. It must be sung, it must be praised, and it must be to God. And therefore, psalms could also be spoken of as hymns, but by this definition, we find hymns that don't belong in the Old Testament uh, Psalter that are scattered throughout the New Testament, for instance, Mary's Magnificent, my soul, uh, Magnificat rather, my soul magnifies the Lord. That wonderful declaration, that song of praise to God who had put her in such an exalted position to bear the Redeemer. Zechariah's Benedictus, let now your servant depart in peace. The Nunc Dimittis, as it's called, or the, the song, uh, oh, I'm sorry, that's no, that's the song of Simeon, let now your, the Nunc Dimittis, let now your... Uh, servant. Uh, Zechariah was a song of praise regarding uh, the birth of, of uh, John the Baptist and what he had done in his life. That's, that's an amazing song as well. And then, of course, there's those heavenly hymns that we hear in Revelation. We see the elders standing around the throne. They're not singing the psalms. They're singing psalms of praise, new um, compositions, praising the work of the Lamb. They don't just sing psalms. They sing hymns to Jesus Christ. Uh, and if our worship is practice for heaven, and it should be, then we should be following that practice as well. We should be singing hymns that speak not just of the coming work of the, uh, the Savior that we find in the Psalms, although that's very important. We should be singing about what he has done, what Jesus Christ has accomplished. We should be singing things like amazing grace in the way that he has saved us by his grace. And we find also other fragments of what we believe are uh, of hymns in the New Testament letters of Paul in Ephesians 5.14, in Colossians 1.15 through 20, in 1 Timothy 3.16, and, and so on. Uh, and additionally, we have lots of historians in the early church who said that they sang hymns and not just psalms. Uh, the emperor, and there's also other uh, there's other evidence that Governor Pliny, for instance, reported to the Emperor Trajan. This is 112 AD, so very early on. He said, they asserted, however, these reporting about what the Christians did. They asserted, however, that the sum and substance of their fault or error had been that they were accustomed to meet on a fixed day before dawn and sing responsibly a hymn to Christ as to a God. They sang hymns in which they exalted Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity. These are not psalms that they're singing, but hymns that were composed in the early church. Keep in mind that was written, that litter was written probably about 20 years after the writing of Revelation. Finally, there's that third category, spiritual songs, pneumaticus ode. What are they? Well, they're praise choruses from Bethel, you know, where you repeat the same thing 38,000 times. 
And no, that's not what they are. Numenicus Ode was a spiritual song. Uh, Galatians 6 1 uh, is spiritual. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you are also tempted. Uh, Christian was a term that was coined, you remember, by the enemies of Christ. For Paul, the way of saying a Christian song would be spiritual song, pneumaticus ode. When he's writing this, they weren't referred to as members of, uh, they weren't called Christians, generally speaking. They were called those who were in the way, those who had the spirit. So uh, a Christian song is a pneumaticus ode. Uh, and many non-exclusive psalmody commentators are convinced absolutely that doesn't refer to a, uh, a psalm. The 19th century theologian John Eady stated in his commentary, the ode is a general term and denotes the natural outburst of an excited bosom, the language of the sudden impulses of an oriental temperament. Such odes as were allowed to Christians are termed spiritual that is prompted by the spirit which filled them. But the psalms and hymns are already marked out as consecrated and needed no such additional epithet. For the prevailing meaning of the adjective, see under Ephesians 1.3, odes of this nature are found in scripture as that of Hannah at her boy's consecration where and what he's saying here is that Christians will occasionally, and I, I'm not good enough to do it, admittedly, they, they, they sang, filled with the Spirit, the praises of God in that moment. You remember when these things happened? Hannah at her boy's consecration, uh, the virgin at the Annunciation, that of Zechariah on the birth of his son. As a considerable portion of the church at Ephesus was composed of Jews, these psalms in the idiom of a Jew might be the psalms of the Old Testament and not merely sacred poems, thus named by them as the opinion of Harless. And the hymns might be compositions of praise, specially adapted to the Gentile mind, though not in opposite to the Jew. The imagery, allusions, and typical references of the psalms could not be fully appreciated by the Gentile sections of the churches. And these spiritual odes, perhaps of a more glowing and individual nature, taking their shape both of psalms and hymns, might be recited or chanted in their assemblies or churches as the Spirit gave utterance. Acts 10.46, Tertullian says in his Apology, many hymns which were originally private and personal have thus become incorporated with the psalmody of our churches. They were writing these spiritual songs as the Gentiles were brought in it wasn't just the psalms that were being sung within the church. It was psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs that were flowing out of spirit-filled believers who were united to Christ, filled with joy, and coming up with those new compositions. And so we should be making these new compositions, but not stuff following, you know, a Nashville template. You, uh, you, <laughs> you, know, you have to say this. You have to make a reference to something in nature like rain or a tornado. And then, you know, you've got all these, these things. But rather, it should flow naturally and be in keeping with the word of God and our experience of his redemption. And so, therefore, it should be something that, that speaks of the great themes of Scripture. It doesn't have to be entirely complex. I mean, Amazing Grace is a wonderful sign. It's not incredibly complex. It talks about themes of redemption, though. It talks about the fact that God is sovereign in our redemption, that he's the one who saved us when we were blind and lost and so on. It doesn't have to be incredibly doctrinal, but it does need to reflect the truth of the Scripture. And we see throughout history... God's servants who are filled with the Spirit, singing his praises. David is a shepherd, singing praises to God. That's where we got the Psalms in the first place. And then later on, men like John Newton and William Cooper and so on, who sang these things. And not just 
as a means of expressing their love and their devotion to God, but as a solace to their own souls and a reminder of the truths. William Cooper was a man who was tremendously troubled. He was uh, a manic depressive, a man who attempted suicide more than once. His songs have a strong note of assurance going to them constantly. Uh, no matter what my circumstances are, I know the Lord still loves me is one of the main themes in those songs. Why did he sing those? As a reminder of the truth to himself. When you sing the hymns, the hymns of the faith, I hope these are truths and reminders to you. I had a mentor many, many years ago who uh, suffered also um, with, with great bouts of depression and mel melancholy. He said, whenever I am suffering from them, I take up my guitar, no matter how I'm feeling, and I sing the truth. I sing the great hymns of the faith, and they remind me of who I am, of who God is, and where I am in relationship to him, that he'll never leave me, he'll never forsake me, and that no matter how gray the day seems to be, no matter how sad I am inside, that he loves me, he'll never let me go, and that he sent his son into the world to die for me. And so he would play those, and they would comfort his soul. We should be singing those reminders. Now, I need to bring this to you. I've talked about singing, I've talked about what we should be singing in the spirit in which we have been singing. If you've heard all that and you still reflect, I have nothing to sing about, as a Christian or somebody who professes to be a Christian, then something's very wrong. If singing hymns brings you no joy, if you can't sing hymns and psalms and spiritual songs with genuine grace and joy in your heart, it means you have not yet experienced what you're singing about. And so it, it would be like, you know, someone, uh, I don't know, from Hungary singing Jeremiah was a bullfrog, having no idea what the words meant. Brothers, sisters, friends, to sing to the Lord in truth means singing with grace in our hearts. We can't sing really and understand those things if we have not yet experienced the grace of the Lord, if we haven't closed with him. And it's a very sad thing if, if you have not yet experienced that the joy of your salvation, as David puts it. It is, a, it is a wonderful thing. It is something we need to be reminded of as we sing. Where we were when God found us and how we have been set in an entirely new place. So I pray, I pray that if you have not yet discovered the joy of singing hymns to the Lord, because you have not yet closed with him, that you would come to him that you would flee to the rock of your, your salvation. You would go to, the, to the, the tower, the refuge, the only one who can save you in the day of judgment, and that you would no longer seek to find your joy in the drunken carousing of the world, but rather would find it in Christ and in him alone. Let's go to him now. God, our Father, we pray, Lord, that you would teach us to sing your praises with genuine joy in our hearts. May it be, O oh Lord, that as we sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, that we would sing them like those of old who composed them, that we would revere you and be in awe like David, or at times when we are, we are downcast and surrounded by enemies, that we would seek our solace in reminding ourselves that you are the one who watches out for us, or when we are tempted to be full of ourselves, Lord, that we would remember that you saved us by grace alone that we would be constantly reminded of what is to come, that our vision would extend all the way to heaven as we sing about it, and we would know 
with great assurance that your Savior, or our Savior rather, your Son, Jesus Christ, came into the world to save sinners like us. May we then know the joy of our salvation. We pray the 